Super excited about what we're gonna talk about today. If you're brand new, my name's Justin. And this entire year, we've been going through the whole story of the Bible, something we've actually called the whole story. And so what we've done is we've taken the whole story of scripture and we've broken it down into 14 different series. And we're just going bit by bit. And right now, uh, we've covered the first five. Those are done. Our last one was called So Much Blood, one of my favorite series that I've ever gotten to do. Just a good title. I think just a solid Title, no one can argue with that. So much blood, it grabs your attention. Um, and now we're in the sixth of 14 series and it's called Messy Majesty. Messy Majesty. What we're doing is we're exploring the lives of some of the most prominent kings of the, the nation of Israel. In the time period where Israel has escaped from Egypt, they've become a, a powerful nation and this, this lasts for a little while, a few centuries before they end up being conquered by other more powerful nations and the lives of these kings, if you know their stories, they're very interesting. They tell us hundreds of years of, of history, but, but man, they're a mess. Like they are, they are a mess. I'm talking like daytime TV drama level mess. And it's amazing that, that we get to read all of their mistakes, all their failures. You know, I say this so often that it, it, it's a little cliched for me at least, but, but I believe this. The Bible is not the story of amazing men and women doing great things for God. It is the story of really broken, messed up people being used by God to do incredible things even in the midst of their brokenness. And so the Bible does this incredible job of recording the failures of the, of the people who are its heroes or its kings. And you don't really see that in many places. Even in our world today, with the people that, that are in leadership, the people that everyone's supposed to, to look up to, I mean, their, their life stories, if you bought their book, it's a highly edited collection of their wins and maybe a few of their unavoidable failures that they have to address, but it's always addressed in such a way that ultimately makes them look good. That is not the case with scripture. God made it, he made it painfully abundant for all of us that we as people, we, we are flawed, we struggle, and we can fail. But that failure does not, it does not disqualify us from being useful to God. And I don't know about you, but that's very encouraging for me. Now, the lives of the kings, they're kind of like messy on a whole different level. And very often their lives serve as cautionary tales. And so that's what we're really doing with this series. We're looking at the lives of these kings and it's basically our chance to go, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. In fact, uh, very few of my, my messages have ever been titled don't. That's not really my, my bent is to tell you, hey, don't do this. But in these, these kings' lives, it's really the main takeaway half the time is, hey, whatever you do, don't do this. Don't. And today we're gonna look at the life of a king named Solomon. Solomon is the third king in the history of the nation of Israel. And it's interesting because the first king is a man named Saul, and Saul's, Saul's terrible. Saul's no good. Saul's life is pretty much 100% awful, bad, don't do any of it. And then we get to David, and David's life, we looked at him last week, David's life is for the most part pretty amazing. There's a lot about David to be inspired by, and there's some pretty major failures that you want to avoid, but his was mostly good. So we went from mostly, mostly bad to mostly good, and then you get to Solomon, and Solomon is about as 50-50 as a person can possibly be. In fact, Solomon's life is really interesting because he starts as strong as you possibly could, but it ends really poorly. And I don't know if you can think about something that starts really strong, but ends in a really bad way. Think like Super Bowl 51, 2017. <laughs> the Atlanta Hawks at halftime 
are up 21 to three. And keep in mind that no team in the history of the NFL has ever come back from a, a, double, def, a double digit deficit at halftime in the Super Bowl. It's never happened before. And then Lady Gaga goes on and does her halftime show and everything falls apart. And to this day, I think it's Lady Gaga's fault. I blame Lady Gaga. I, I, no, I'm just joking. I won't go into that. That's probably too personal, right? For many of us, that's too painful uh, of a memory to experience. It's, it's still too soon. We need at least a decade before we can really deep dive into that. Um, let me take something else from, from my childhood. Anyone grow up as like a big fan of movies? Like you're like a, yeah, like movies were a thing. So my kids watched kids' movies. That's what they watched as, as children. Their, their favorite movies, in fact, I have a friend from college who's an animator at Pixar. And my oldest son watched Cars 1 and 2. You know the movie with like the talking cars with eyeballs and all that, Lightning McQueen. He watched those movies so often that I literally reached out to my friend and said, can you just make another one? Can you please just make one more car? I'm so tired of watching these movies on repeat. Just make another one. And they did all because I asked my friend. Um, I, I didn't watch kids' movies growing up. I think in part because it was the 80s, right? And the filters were just a little different. So we had this collection of VHS tapes at home. And I had a few that were like my, my go-to. Like these were the movies that as a three, four, five-year-old, I'm watching very often. One was Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters. That was like my, that was my Cars 1, okay? And, and the one though that probably like stood out to me, like when I think about my childhood, this is the movie that I watched as much as any movie ever was Raiders of the Lost Ark. The original Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Has anyone seen this movie? Most of us have, yeah, it's a great movie. It ends with people's faces literally melting. Um, just a good kids, you know, honestly though, it taught me to honor God. Because if you know the story of that movie, like they, they open up the ark and whew, it is like, don't do that. And so I did learn at a young age, like honor God. Um, no, it was, it was an awesome movie. And that, that movie for me was just epic and incredible. And then the second one, Temple of Doom, eh, you know, a little weird, but fine. The third one I thought was really good was Sean Connery. Like, you know, that was good. And then when I was in my mid-20s, I saw a trailer that they were bringing it back. Indiana Jones 4. Has anyone seen Indiana Jones 4? Did anyone like Indiana Jones 4? One person. And I'm not judging you. I'm not. I, I, was so, I was so excited because it was like a part of my childhood was, was coming back and I thought, oh man, this is epic. This is gonna be awesome and modern special effects. Just imagine, I remember sitting in the theater and no offense to the gentleman in the back, but I remember walking away. It was like as, as disappointed as a person can be. So much so that, that I saw that they just released a new Indiana Jones, the fifth one. Has anyone seen the new Indiana Jones? It's out in the theaters. Like you could go today. Does anyone want to? I'm not inviting you to go with me. I'm just saying, okay, Indiana Jones 4 is like, I'll go. Of course, of course. I mean, of course. Glutton for punishment, right? We gotta, of course. But no, like, it's, it's amazing how often that happens with things like movies. There's this tendency where the first one is like, wow. And then, you know, by the time you get to the fifth one, you don't even wanna go. And you almost have to like pretend like the new ones don't exist because it tarnishes the original. So you just have to in your mind segment like that movie stands alone, it's on its own. And I'm gonna pretend like none of the, else, none of the others ever happened. And there's lots, of different, there's lots of different movie franchises like that. The first one, it started so well, it started so strong and then there's this drift. 
And by the time you get to four or five, no one even cares anymore. That's like Solomon's life. His life is a life of drift. In fact, the, the title of the message is Don't Drift Into Disaster. Don't drift into disaster. It's amazing how easy it is for us as people to start strong, to have really good intentions and pure motives and, and to desire really good things, but just subtly, sometimes subconsciously even, we, we find ourselves drifting further and further from what we set out to do and set out to be. And if not careful, we can find ourselves in this place sometimes where we, we literally look at ourselves and go, how did I get here? Like, how did I get so off course? And it, it may not be in every aspect of your life, but, but I'm sure all of us can relate to this in certain areas of life. Maybe it's relationships that we've had that we used to be so close and we don't know how or when we drifted so far apart. It could be, you know, it could be your finances, it could be something in your career, right? It could be your physical health. It could even be your relationship with the Lord where you just don't feel that same passion and closeness that you used to and you wonder why, how? And the simple truth is there's this thing called drift and it's very, very easy, very easy to just subtly drift off course and years and years go by and you find yourself in a place you don't want to be. Solomon's life is a cautionary tale about drift, but it gives us the opportunity to learn how to either course correct if there's drift happening in our lives or hopefully avoid the drift altogether. So we can look at his life, we can look at his mess and we can have the takeaway where we say, I don't wanna drift into disaster. So let's look at Solomon's life for just a second and let's start with the uh, incredibly strong start. He succeeds his father, David, as king. And there's this amazing story in 1 Kings chapter three of one of the earliest moments in his, in his reign. It says that Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father, David, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burned incense at the local places of worship. The most important of these places of worship was at Gibeon. So the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. And that night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and God said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. Can we just pause there for a second? Can you imagine? Like God saying, hey, whatever you want, you got it. I mean, honestly, a lot of you know the answer to, to what Solomon responds with, but, but like, what would you ask for? It's an open-ended, tell me what you want and I'll give it to you from God. That's, that's crazy. And Solomon replied, you showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father, David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you've continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O Lord, my God, you've made me king instead of my father, David but I'm like a, a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you've asked for wisdom and governing my people with justice, and you've not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me 
and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. That is a tremendous start, right? That, that, that's a strong start. God comes to him, says, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? He says, wisdom. I mean, which means he had to have already been kind of wise. You gotta be wise enough to ask for wisdom, right? And God is so pleased with him and God makes him this bold promise. I'm gonna give you wisdom. I'm gonna give you wealth, a long life, fame. You're gonna have it all. I'm gonna give you more wisdom than anyone who's ever walked the earth has ever had or, or ever will have. He's the wisest man that ever walked the earth not named Jesus. And it continues, the success of his kingdom grows. In fact, the wisdom that he has is, is on display in a really interesting story a little bit later in the same chapter. The situation is there's these two women. You may have heard the story before. It's kind of, it's just funny. It shows how practical his wisdom is. These two women come to him and they have a dispute. There's one baby and each woman claims that the baby belongs to her. And the story goes, one of the, the ladies had rolled over at night and accidentally suffocated their own child uh, but now they're both saying that this other child is theirs and, and no one knows who's telling the truth. So they come to, to Solomon and they're just bickering and fighting about whose baby this belongs to. And this is what Solomon says in response. First Kings 3.24, he says, all right, bring me a sword, which is an odd thing to say in the middle of this conversation. And so a sword was brought to the king and he said, cut the living child in two and give half to the woman and half to the other. And then the woman who was the real mother of the living child and who loved him very much cried out, oh no, my Lord, give her the child, please do not kill him. So Solomon you know, knows, know who the real, knows who the real mother is. And so 1 Kings 3.27, the king said, do not kill the child, but give him to the woman who wants him to live, for she is the mother. And when all Israel heard the king's decision, the people were in awe of the king, for they saw the wisdom God had given him for rendering justice. Like Solomon is, he's wise. The people are in awe. They're blown away. And this wisdom has amazing results for his kingdom. So in 2 Chronicles 9, 13 through 20, we get a window of how successful Israel was under Solomon's watch. It says that each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. 25 tons of gold. That's, that's an amount that is too, it's just too high to even worry about counting. This did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and from traders. All the kings of Arabia and the governors of the provinces also brought gold and silver to Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, each weighing more than 15 pounds. He also made 300 smaller shields of hammered gold, each weighing more than seven and a half pounds. The king placed these shields in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. The king made a huge throne, decorated with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. The throne had six steps with a footstool of gold. There were armlets on both sides of the seat and the figure of a lion stood on each side of the throne. There were also 12 other lions, one standing on each of the six steps. No other throne in all the world can be compared with it. And all of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold, as were all the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. They were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. So Solomon's so successful, the economy under him is so successful that people literally go, silver, eh. If it's not gold, it doesn't matter. Like that's how plentiful gold was in their kingdom. In fact, people have said that the temple that Solomon built is the highest concentration of gold that has ever existed in one place at one time. That's how financially successful things are. So if you're living under Solomon's Israel, you're doing pretty well. Because you look at silver and you're just like, ah, I don't even care about that. That's how successful he is because he's so wise. He's leading the people and it's just, it's amazing. In 2 Chronicles 9, there's this story of a, of a queen that comes to visit. It says, when the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. 
She arrived with a, a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold, obviously. Apparently gold was just everywhere back then. It's just like people were picking up gold on the street. I don't know, it's all, it's all over the place. And precious jewels. And when she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had on her mind. Solomon had answers for all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba realized how wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace that he had built, she was overwhelmed. She was also amazed at the food on his tables, the organization of his officials and their splendid clothing, the cupbearers and their robes, the burnt offerings that Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. She exclaimed to the king, everything I've heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard the half of your great wisdom. It is far beyond what I was told. So Solomon is so successful, he's so wise that even other other rulers come to see him just to marvel at everything that he does. I mean, this is as strong of a start as anyone could ever have. He asked the Lord for wisdom. He's, he's responsible, he's wise, he, he governs so well that the economy just soars and everyone is, is more prosperous than they've ever been. Other, other rulers are coming from other nations just to see how he does things. That's, that's the strong start. And it's It's unbelievable. And the idea is that it's only gonna get better from here. But remember that, that tendency of, of drift. Remember Indiana Jones 5, okay? Because unfortunately, that's the direction that it goes. So we get to 1 Kings chapter 11, and, and you're gonna, your head might spin if you've never heard this because the difference between this Solomon and the Solomon that we just read, it's, it's almost unfathomable. 1 Kings 11 says, Now Solomon loved many foreign women, Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had, whew, this is not a misprint, 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. And in fact, they did, not turn, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And if you know anything, if you wanna research anything about their practices, it's, oh, it's crazy. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and if you know the story of the Mount of Olives, right, it, it's a place where Jesus spent a lot of time. So this, all the geography here connects in a really interesting way. He even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for, for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my, my commands, you've not kept my covenant, you've disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you're still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. 
And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. Whew, that is some drift. I mean, he, he goes from incredible, amazing start. He's a wonderkind, right? He's just, everything he does is successful. Whatever he touches literally seems to turn to gold. And by the end of his life, he has drifted so far from the Lord that he's building shrines and temples to pagan gods. And he's worshiping those gods. Not the God who appeared to him that, that gave him all the blessings, but these gods of, of these foreign women that he's married. And it's, it's crazy how far he goes. And here's what's really interesting. Solomon wrote scripture. He's one of the few people who have ever walked the face of the earth that that wrote something that people recognize and say, this isn't just a person writing, this is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God inspiring this person. It's scripture. He wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. There's other stuff that, that he wrote as well. And, and he's the only person that has ever penned scripture that you could actually have a serious debate about whether or not his heart truly belonged to the Lord. Like, like, He's the only one. There's not one other person that is an author of scripture where if you said, hey, do you think that they really, like, are they a genuine follower of the Lord? You'd be like, absolutely. I mean, I know they had some rough moments. I know they, they had some mess ups, but I mean, overall, you look at the trajectory of their life and it's clear that the Lord was their top priority and they love the Lord passionately. Solomon, you can't quite say that. And yet he even writes scripture. I don't think there is a person in all of the, the story of the Bible whose life makes a turn like this and doesn't really seem to recover. It's really interesting and it's deeply tragic. And it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you can't marry 700 women in one night, right? Like there has to be some type of, of long process there. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a long period of drift. But like I said, it's drift that we can learn from. And so what I wanna do for the rest of our time pretty quickly is I wanna go through five different categories of drift. And I'm gonna apologize on the front end for my use of alliteration, which is when you start everything with the same consonant. I'm gonna, it's too much alliteration today, but it'll help you remember things, I bet. So here we go. We have the drift of disobedience, the drift of disillusionment, the drift of deceit, the drift of distraction, and the drift of darkness. And these are all aspects of drift that, that if we're not careful, we can experience in our own lives, but we wanna avoid at all costs because we, unlike Solomon, do not want to drift into disaster. So let's start with disobedience. Solomon, for all of his wisdom, seemed to think that the commands of God were more like suggestions. And I get that because I have a teenager. And any of you who have teenagers or maybe have been teenagers in the past know that there's this certain mentality where very clear commands, very clear commands are suggestions. And let's be honest, we're all like that because we all drive cars and we all see speed limit signs and we know what speed limit signs are. Hey, you might wanna think about going somewhere within this range of speed, right? There's something about the human heart that disobedience is easy for us. And Solomon, for all of his wisdom, was incredibly disobedient to God. And so if we go back to 1 Kings chapter three, it says that Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he married one of his daughters. He brought her to live in the city of David, 
until he could finish building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around the city. At that time, the people of Israel sacrificed their offerings at local places of worship for a temple honoring the name of the Lord had not yet been built. Solomon ends up building that temple. But before he has 700 wives, when he picks his first, she's the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, God had, had foreseen the fact that the people of Israel would one day have kings and he had given some very explicit instructions to the people who might become kings one day in Deuteronomy 17. It says this, the king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the, the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. So if you're not supposed to like go to Egypt to buy a horse, if God is like, hey, you guys used to be slaves there and I rescued you from Egypt, I don't want you going back to Egypt. I don't even want you to go back to Egypt to buy a horse. I think we can go ahead and say that getting a wife probably, probably counts with that. And in case that's not clear, God goes on and just makes it extra clear. The king must not take many wives for himself. And you might be like Solomon, go, well, what is many? That's a relative term. I mean, 700 many, I don't know. Because they will turn his heart away from the Lord and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Which again, Solomon clearly did. So Solomon, for all his wisdom, he repeatedly disobeys the Lord. Repeatedly disobeys the Lord. He views the commands of God as, as suggestions. And disobedience, it causes us to drift away from where God may have us be. It just does. You know, we just finished this series called So Much Blood. And we talked about the seriousness of sin. And the cool thing about us because of Jesus, and maybe you've never heard the, the core of, of the gospel before, the message of Jesus, that his sacrifice on the cross has paid the price for your sins. And now through faith in Jesus, you have a restored relationship with God if you put your trust in him. And it's no longer about what you've done and what you haven't done. It's no longer about how much sin you have either done or avoided. See, because of Jesus, our sin no longer divides us from God. But our sin is just as destructive in our lives as it ever has been. So our sin no longer divides us from God because of Jesus and because of the cross, but our sin can still destroy our lives. Sin is a destructive force. That's why we talked about that for several weeks, that we have to take it seriously. To disobey the Lord is to sin. And we all know this about disobedience. It's easier to do it the more you do it. Like the, the more times you, you disobey, the easier it becomes to do it again. And disobedience, it becomes this this slow pull away from God or away from the, the things in life that, that we should be pursuing and we drift away and we end up somewhere we didn't wanna be. Now, the, the nice thing about it is the, the remedy is pretty simple. It's just repentance and obedience. Repentance and obedience. If you find yourself saying, you know what? Yes, I have, I have treated some of the commands of God like suggestions and I've said, thanks for the advice, Lord. I'll consider it and then I've gone a different route. You're not alone, everybody does that. And all that, that we have to do to remedy that, to sort of remedy the drift and get back on course is to, to pray and repent. Repent means to change the way you think. It just means to say, Lord, I recognize that I've, I've gone the wrong direction. I'm sorry. Give me the strength to turn around and go the right direction. And so if you find yourself saying, you know what, I think I may have experienced some drift in my life 
maybe in my relationship with the Lord or some other area of life because I, I haven't been obedient. I haven't been committed to doing things God's way. I just haven't been. I've been more committed to doing them my own way. Well, just repent. Recognize that. Change the way you think. Ask the Lord for forgiveness because you already have it. He's, he's already forgiven you. I think it's helpful for us to ask for forgiveness, just to be reminded that he has forgiven us. And commit to just simple obedience. Just simple obedience. I have this thing with my kids, and those of you with kids might, might understand this. And it's like one of those father pet peeves, but I really want my kids to understand, like when they're doing something they ought not do, which happens, enough. And I, and I go to them, and this is especially true of my youngest ones. And I go to them and I say, hey, you need to stop. Like this needs to stop. Very often, they will, they will say to me, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And they're, they're trying, like they can sense that a consequence is coming. And so they'll just start going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I'm like, I don't need you to say I'm sorry. I need you to change what you're doing, right? So instead of, instead of yelling sorry, just stop. Stop what you're doing. Pick up the trash you just threw in the floor and put it in the trash can. It's 10 feet away, right? Don't apologize for the trash. Pick the trash up, you know what I'm saying? Because it's basically as a dad, I'm just, I just simple obedience. Just, just do what I'm asking you to do. And God is such a loving, patient father. But he is a father and he is God and he has authority. And that authority is something we have to respect and we have to follow. And it goes well for us when we do. Disobedience causes drift, but the, the remedy is just to repent and turn. All right, that's number one, the, the drift of disobedience. Number two, the drift of disillusionment. Have you ever been disillusioned with something in life? Like completely, like, let's just throw one out there, politics. Like, have you ever looked and just been like, it doesn't even matter anymore. Like, it's all, it just all needs to go away. I'm not saying I think that. I'm just saying that there's certain things in life where you look at it and you find that you have no hope. You're like, it's all just a big mess. Disillusionment is a really, it's a really scary place to be. And Solomon drifts in a place, into a place of disillusionment in his life. One of the, the books of, of scripture that he wrote is Ecclesiastes. And there's some really, really good bits of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, for sure. But Ecclesiastes does this incredible job of, of showing us some of Solomon's processing as his life has taken a turn for the worst. And so, for example, we get Ecclesiastes 1-2. This is gonna bring all of your spirits up. You ready for this? Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. And by the way, it's completely meaningless. It's not just a little meaningless. It's not just minorly meaningless. Every, everything, everything in your life, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever cared about, you know what it is? Completely meaningless. That's Solomon. Gotta love that guy, right? Just a lot of fun to have at parties. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 2.17. Solomon's reflecting on his life and he says, so I came to hate life. Because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Now, is that true? No. We'll talk later. No, of course not. No, I mean, like, think, think about this. Think about some of the small things people have done for you that meant the world to you. Like, honestly, think about how small of an action someone can take that means the world to you. 
Like life can't be meaningless if very small gestures, if a word, if a conversation, if a, a bit of encouragement, if a phone call, just saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. If we can be so heavily impacted by something so small, how can life be meaningless? Now, life, life isn't meaningless at all. Solomon is just in the dumps. Solomon has become disillusioned with life. And disillusionment's a really interesting thing because it, again, it's a drift, it's a slow process. I think this can happen a lot. I'll use an example, uh, relationships. You can experience a lot of disillusionment in relationships. And I'll use marriage as an example, not because my marriage is in a place of disillusionment, I'm just saying, but it has been before. Because what happens is, is we have high hopes, right? Like we, we start out in life and we have high hopes. You know this because if you go to a, a preschool graduation where if you didn't know they have those, they do. Preschools have graduations now, right? And the kids get to tell you what they're going to be and they all have very high hopes. It's amazing when you hear what these children are going to become. There can't be that many presidents. There can't be that many astronauts, but apparently they're all gonna be those things. One kid in my, my third child's class said he was going to be a superhero. He had just, that's, that's, that's the level of hope that children have, right? You start with high hopes and, and you think about when you start out in a relationship and your hopes are so high, but then you know what's gonna happen? Inevitably, you get disappointed. You do. The people you love the most disappoint you. They don't live up to your high hopes. Maybe you don't live up to your high hopes, but you do something one day and the way that they respond, you're just like, uh, that's not, that's not what I was hoping for, you know? My, my marriage was disappointing in certain ways. And I know that you, some of you are looking at me like, what are you doing? I love my wife, she would say the same thing, okay? It was disappointing because my expectations were way out of whack. I had all kinds of silly expectations when I got married because I was 21 and dumb. And that doesn't mean if you're 21, you're dumb. It just means that I was dumb when I was 21. <laughs> there were certain things that I expected to happen every single day when I got married. And guess what? They didn't happen every single day. And you're probably thinking, I think I know what that is. And you are right. <laughs> and you know, I just thought, well, hey. You know, it's Tuesday. I got nothing to do. Like, come on. And so, when that doesn't happen, you get disappointed. You get disappointed. It's Father's Day, so I'm just gonna ask for grace from my wife. Go, I would never have used this example on Mother's Day. I would never have done it. No. But here's the thing, and, and that's a silly example, but the truth is, in reality, we all have expectations, we all have high hopes, and we all do experience disappointment. And if you live in disappointment long enough, it stops being disappointment and it becomes discouragement. And discouragement, it's a deeper level of disappointment. Right now, you're not just like, oh man, you're just, whew, you're down. And if you live discouraged long enough, you become disillusioned. Disillusionment is when you get to the point where you can't even see a way forward. You, you can't, even see how it's going to get better. You can't imagine a solution because everything just seems hopeless. You know, Megan and I have shared about this before, but our first year of marriage was really hard. It was really hard. I was disappointed, Megan was disappointed. We, we had these expectations for marriage and it was just harder 
than we thought it was going to be. And we got to a point year one, at the very end of year one, the only time this has ever happened in our entire marriage where we, we looked at each other and said, are we gonna stick this out? And the thought was, we don't have kids yet, so like the collateral damage is minimal. Maybe it would be best if we just said, you know what, we, this, this didn't work. We got really close to that. We had that conversation. And we stopped short of that because we had a conviction that our marriage was a commitment not just to one another, but to the Lord. And we had this sliver of hope that the Lord could, could fix all the dysfunction that was, was happening in our relationship. And he did um, instantly, just like that. Everything got better and it's been better ever since. No, it was actually a lot of marriage counseling, a lot of pain, a lot of fun. It was worth it because I love that woman. And in reality, I, I can say that I was at a place at a certain point in my marriage where I was disillusioned, where I didn't really think it would get better. I couldn't imagine it. And that's, that's not what reality was. That's where my mental state was. This is where Solomon lives. He is, he's drifted into disillusionment. He cannot see a way forward, but with God, there is always a way forward. I would imagine the disciples were fairly disillusioned when they saw Jesus die. I imagine that when he was put into the tomb, they were pretty disillusioned at all the promises that he had made and all the things that he had done. And I imagine thoughts like, what was this all for? This was all pointless, ran through their minds. But when he got back up again, that, that disillusionment, it melted away pretty fast. And so that's the reality is if you find yourself disillusioned with your, your marriage, with another relationship in your, in your life, maybe it's your career, maybe it's the world that you live in. You just look at the world and all you see are the negative aspects of the world and you're disillusioned. You can't see any way forward. God always has a way forward. And the remedy for disillusionment is, is pretty simple. It is, it's wonder and gratitude. If you're disillusioned, if that's caused you to drift, you just need wonder and gratitude. You need to look and search and find the good things that God has done. And you need to fixate on those things. Focus on, on the good intensely because it's everywhere if you look. And thank God for everything that he's done. Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven. Say, always be full of joy in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Like it's gotta be repeated, rejoice. What do you have to rejoice about today? Is there one thing in your life that is worthy of rejoicing in? And if that's so, even if it's only one thing, the man rejoice, take joy in it. Let everyone see that you're considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. When's the last time that you just stopped to thank God for everything he's done for you? Good, and keep doing it. And then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Wonder and gratitude will remedy disillusionment. And if that's, if that's some drift that you've experienced because things have gone sideways in life, they haven't gone the way you've wanted them to go, and you're a little jaded, you're a little cynical, focus on some wonder, focus on some gratitude, and correct that drift. There's the drift of, of deceit. At some point in time, somehow Solomon begins to believe lies. You know, he marries all these different women and they worship these false gods. And, and somehow, some way, we don't actually have the inside story, but he starts to buy into the lie that worshiping those gods will somehow do something good for him in his life. There's even some self-deceit in Solomon. If you read Ecclesiastes, there's a couple times where he says, I was the wisest of all people. 
And that's true, God said that about him, but I don't know if it's a good idea to maybe describe yourself as the wisest of all people. You know, it's just, it's probably not a remedy for, for humility or something like that, not a recipe rather for humility. And so Solomon gets off track and, and he's, he's lied to, he's pulled away, he's deceived by a variety of people. And deception is, ooh, you wanna talk about drift. If you start believing lies, you will drift fast. A great example of this is the story of Adam and Eve. One of the earliest stories in the Bible, right? And, and the serpent comes up to them and says, hey, is it true that God said you must not eat from any of the fruit in the garden? And then Eve begins to have this conversation and says, no, that's not true. God said, we're just not supposed to eat from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If we eat it, we'll die. And the serpent says, you won't die. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And, he, and he's twisting words because God had already created us to be like him, as scripture says, but, but Eve is deceived. And then they eat from that fruit and they instantly become filled with shame because they're naked and their innocence is gone. And when you're naked and innocent, it doesn't matter to you. But when you're not innocent and you feel exposed, there's shame. So they go and they hide from God. God doesn't hide from them in their sin, they hide from God and God finds them because like that's, he's good at that. And so God looks at them and says, what are you guys doing? Like they, they kind of emerge, I don't know, from some bushes or something and they're covering themselves, they've got some fig leaves and he's like, what is, what is going on? And we see this in, in Genesis chapter three. The man, Adam replies, well, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Who said that? Says who? Where did you hear that? And notice that when he says I'm naked, he's not just saying I'm naked as a descriptive term. He's saying I'm naked. What he's essentially saying is the way that I am, the way God that you made me is not how I ought to be. And so I, I gotta change something. And God is like, who told you that? I think we'd be amazed at how often we believe things that God would simply look at us and say, who told you that? Where did you get that idea? I actually find it really interesting not to jump, uh, not to step into it on a major cultural issue right now, but okay. Um, transgenderism in the United States, this massive epidemic that we have right now, it's amazing, isn't it, if you think about it, what is, the, what is the core belief that a person struggling with that has? That I, as I was created, am not as I should be. And it needs to change. I'm not how I should be. This, this body that I live in is wrong, and it needs to change. Isn't that the core lie that Adam and Eve believed immediately when they ate from the wrong tree? The very first thing they thought was, I'm not right. Something has to change. And so we see in this huge movement in our country right now, this celebration, honestly, of a lie. That as created, we're not as we ought to be and, and we should do whatever we can to change it so that we feel better. No, no, no. God would look at, with compassion, God would look at anyone dealing with that and say, hey, who told you that? Because that does not come from me. No, scripture says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've been created. Yeah, you can clap for that. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're created in the image of God. And if you have to drastically alter everything about yourself to be at peace with yourself, that is not of the Lord. That's not, God will change you from the inside out. But it's this core lie, it's deceit. We have to be so careful not to believe lies. And they're everywhere. We have lies about everything you can imagine. There's so many lies about happiness. 
I'm so grateful, I've said this before, but it's one of those pieces of advice that will stick in my mind forever. My pastor in college, Roy, right before I got married, he was talking to me about this man who had come to him, frustrated with his wife. And he said, my wife just doesn't make me happy anymore. And Roy's response was, who said that was her job? Right? Yeah, clap for that. There you go. There's a bunch of men clapping like, yeah, and their wives are like, stop. Um, you know, no, but seriously, or maybe it's the other way around, I don't know. There was, I believe lies about all kinds of things because we live in a culture that lies to us all the time. There's just deceit and deception everywhere. So much of it's about the pursuit of happiness that if you devote yourself to your own happiness and if you make every decision based on what makes you feel good right now, that's, that's where you're gonna find happiness and that's a lie. That's an absolute lie. In fact, people who are the most fixated on their own happiness are often the least happy people. But if we fixate on the Lord, if we live not to please ourselves, but we live to please God, ooh, that changes things. So be wary of the, the drift of deceit. And the only way to combat deceit is to know the truth. And the truth is, is in a word, Jesus. Jesus said that to know him was to know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One of the things that Jesus says more than anything else, he repeats it often, is I tell you the truth. If you devote your life to Jesus, if you study Jesus, if you know his teachings, if you know his words, if you study all of scripture, but all of scripture uh, is made clear in the person of Jesus, you will know the truth. And all you gotta do in life is when you see something, go, huh, that's interesting. Look at it, look at Jesus, see if they match. And if they don't, leave it and go to him because he is truth and truth will set you free. Truth will lead you in the right direction. So if, you've, if you feel like you've drifted a little bit in life, you're not where you ought to be, ask yourself the question, are there any lies that I've believed? What am I basing my decisions on? What have I based all my hopes on? And if you find that it's not truth, just move toward truth, move toward Jesus. Two more and we're gonna do these super fast, super fast. Darkness, mm. Solomon goes to some really dark places. The gods that he worshiped, I mean, it's dark stuff. It's, it's intense. And we live in a world that's filled with darkness. And darkness is interesting because it can be interesting. Things that we would describe as dark can be interesting. They can be tempting. Darkness can be really entertaining. I used to struggle with this in life. I, I love to laugh. I like to be funny. Um, and I used to use, but it's funny as like a covering for anything that was inappropriate. But if I could say, but it was funny, it's almost like there's a Bible verse where it says, but if it's, if it's funny, it doesn't matter what's in it. And I would use that with like movies or stand up comedians where I'm like, oh, I, okay, it's, it's really inappropriate, but it's really funny. And I, I just love humor so much that I would, I would let humor weigh outweigh darkness, as if I could somehow dabble in darkness and it not affect me. And guys, you cannot dabble in darkness. You cannot give your heart and your mind, even for moments, to things that are truly dark. It, it, it messes with you. It, it just does. Solomon, he steeped himself in darkness and it pulled him so far from the Lord. And so we're told in, in 1 John, Chapter one, five through seven, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. 
So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we're supposed to live in the light. Now, look, I'm not, if you're new to his hands, we are not what we would call a legalistic church. I'm not asking to see anyone's Netflix account or ask you, no, we've been given freedom by God and we live in freedom. But Paul says in in the New Testament, everything is permissible. Like, kind of like we said earlier, nothing divides us from from the Lord, ultimately, but not everything's beneficial. And I just know for me, I got to this point in my life and the easiest thing I can use is probably just movies and television and entertainment, where I just had to get to a point where I said, you know what, if it's darkness, if I watch it and it just, if it brings me down, if it fixates my attention on the worst parts of life, I don't care how high quality it is, I don't care how interesting, I don't care how many people are into it. There's no form of entertainment that's worth me sacrificing the light of Jesus and being pulled into the dark. Darkness will cause you to drift from God and drift from all the good things that God has for you. So avoid it, run to the light, just run to it. One last thing, distraction, final one. This is a quick one, this is easy. The drift of distraction. Now, I would imagine having 700 wives would be a pretty distracting experience. In life, just keeping up with anniversaries alone, that is more, that's two anniversaries every day, every single day. I think one of the easiest ways to drift, not just from God, but from, from lots of things, from closeness in relationships with your children, with your parents, with your friends, focused goals that you have in your career, it's just distractions. And it's so easy to turn good things into distractions. You know, I, I, I haven't said this in, Five weeks, which is really amazing for me. I have a son who plays basketball. And I can say definitively that in many ways that has been one of the greatest joys of my life and in many ways that has been one of the biggest distractions I have ever had to deal with. Because there is always a game to say yes to. There's always a training session that can help us get a little bit better. There's always an experience and and whatever. And it is so easy for me because I've always been so obsessed with that sport. It's so easy for me to just Make that priority number one, two, three through seven and be so distracted from other things. And, and here's the, the fatherly conviction. I realized a few years ago that I had spent so much more time and energy trying to help my son perfect his jump shot than I had tried to help him perfect his character. And it was like, ooh, that's probably not good. Because my job as a father is not, I mean, I don't think the Lord's gonna say, hey, your son, I saw those drills. He shot 87% the other day. That was, wow. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Your, your son can shoot a basketball, right? But I'm supposed to teach him to have a heart after God. And I'm supposed to teach him to, to value what is right and what is good. And I spent so much more time, and have, I'm just being honest, I've spent so much more time distracted by all of the, it's just, it's exciting, it's so much fun and, and it, it feels rewarding and it's kind of like instant gratification. The sound of a swish, if you're a basketball, you just know that, whoosh, oh, it's like, whoo. It's like dopamine. But it's a distraction very often from the more important things. And I think we all have that stuff. Somewhere along the way, for, for Solomon, it's like, it's pretty easy to see what was your distraction. It was women. It's the pleasures of this world. It's the things that we really enjoy and they're good and they don't have to go away. Like he could have been married just not to 700 women, right? Sometimes we allow the things of this world to just 
take up too much room in our heart and they keep us from the main things, like the main things. And for me, it can be all kinds of silly stuff. It can be having a clean house. I can sometimes let my kind of obsessive compulsive need for the house to be clean to take, to take away from more important things like spending quality time with my children. It's so easy to get distracted and off course and to drift away from what matters most in our relationships, in every aspect of our lives because we're focused on lesser things. And so if you find yourself in any aspect of life, your relationship with God, right, your career, relationships, finances, physical health, you name it, like, I don't wanna be here. How have I gotten here? Well, maybe you've just been distracted. Maybe there's something in your life that you can just start saying no to because it doesn't matter that much. And it takes away a ton of your time and energy from things that are more important. So just think about that, pray about that. The remedy for distraction, by the way, is focus. And Hebrews chapter 12 says that we run this race with endurance and we do so by, by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And so, man, focus on him, make him be your priority and the other stuff tends to fall in line and you're not distracted from the main things. So worship team, you guys can make your way up. You know, we, uh, we are people who even when we have great intentions, we have a tendency to drift. We're gonna finish by taking Lord's Supper. And this is something that we do almost every single, well, we do it every single Sunday, usually at this point in the gathering, but sometimes a little bit earlier. So if you walked in and you didn't grab a cup with juice and bread, feel free to do so now. You're not distracting anybody right now, I promise. You know, I'm so grateful as we finish this up, the idea of, of getting our, our hearts fixed on Jesus, getting our minds focused on Jesus, that is the remedy for distraction. And he is the light, by the way. He is the light of the world. So what's the remedy for darkness? The light of Jesus, right? What, what's the remedy for lies? The truth of Jesus, right? What's the, what's the remedy for, for disillusionment? The hope of Jesus, the hope that because of him, we have life eternal? What's the remedy for disobedience? Saying yes to Jesus, following him, because he's our Lord, he's our, he's our king. And so really in Jesus, and this meal just represents who he is to us, in Jesus we have everything we need to keep us from drifting. In Jesus we have everything that we need. We have this relationship with a God who loves us, cared enough to come to be one of us, to be with us, and he gives us everything we need. That's why in the book of, of 2 Peter, it says we have everything we need for life and godliness. And we have everything we need because we have him. And so if you found yourself drifting just a little bit in any area of life, you focus on Jesus, you will find yourself on course. Because if you are following Jesus, you are headed in the right direction, always. If he's who you're following, you are always moving in the right direction. And so let's take a moment and let's think about him. Let's follow him. Let's focus on him. Let's pray for the bread. This represents his body broken on the cross. Jesus, thank you for your body broken for us. A sacrifice, Lord. You paid the price for our sin. You took all of our iniquity, all of our shame, all of our guilt upon yourself. And once and for all, you took care of it. You take care of us, Jesus. Lord, help us be grateful to you. Help us focus on you. Help us be filled with wonder and gratitude for you and keep us on course. Let's take the bread. Let's pray for the juice. Father, thank you for this cup and for what it means. 
your blood spilled on our behalf. You poured out everything for us and you still do. You still give everything to us, Lord. You don't hold anything back from your children. So Lord, we're asking today that as we, as we take this, as we thank you for it, we're asking that you would help, help us see you more clearly, help us follow you more closely. Lead us in the right direction, Lord. We know you will. Let's take the juice.